Good morning. How are you all? It's good to see you. I see a couple faces that I have not yet seen, so it's good to see your smiling faces today, all of you. Um, before we get started, I just want to sort of acknowledge that that was probably the longest prayer time I know that we've had since I've been here, and I just, that's, a, that's a praise for me, that, that we can come together and we feel comfortable to uh, voice and acknowledge our concerns, uh, and I just want to thank Caleb for the job that he's been doing. Uh, leading that time. That's, that's an amazing moment in the body of Christ when we can come together and speak directly to him as a united people. And so that's, I just want to acknowledge that that was, that was a special time. Um, and, and there's certainly some momentum that's building even in our prayer time as, as we are gathering together. And that's, that's, an, that's a good thing. Um, so thank you to all of you for being willing to do that. Um, and let's continue that. All right, so we are going to be reading, we're going to re- actually look at uh, quite a bit of Ephesians around this primary scripture today in order to get some context to understand what it is that Paul's trying to do. But our primary scripture is going to be uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, and then 11 through 16. I'll read that now. It says, But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it said, When he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive, he gave gifts to his people. The gifts he gave, were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of all the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking truth and love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. It's the Word of God. As I mentioned, we're going to jump around a little bit in Ephesians. We're going to go back to the first, and we're going to look a little bit about what has preceded this passage. So we can get some sort of, as I said, some context and some understanding as to what Paul's actually trying to say and what he's trying to do with this letter to the church at Ephesus. Um, so we're going to skip back into the first chapter, and we're looking at 8b, which is the second half of 8, uh, and through 10. It says, With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven, and things in earth. I'm going to fire through these, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how they all fit together. Um, And then in the second chapter, he says this. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. And then into chapter 3, he says, Surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to be by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words. He's referring there back to the section we just read out of chapter 1. Um, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. I want to pause right there because he's, he's acknowledging here that this is, this is a crucial text in Paul. He's acknowledging here what he understands the purpose of Christ to be. So beyond what just atonement is and, and what sort of happens, the larger purpose of the mystery of Christ, Paul says here is what I said above. And we'll skip back real quick. Chapter 1, what he says here 
that according to his, God's good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So as we come into sort of the age to come, which is the sort of the promise that we've talked about over and over again, so the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So that what Paul is saying is that his understanding of the purpose of Christ, the mystery of Christ, is that in Christ, all things are brought together in him. Right? And we talked our first week about the temple being a place that heaven and earth are being brought together. And here is Paul reiterating that all of that happens through and in Christ and through us by, by the degree to which we are then connected with Christ, of course. And then uh, we get into f- the fourth chapter, which is the chapter our particular scripture comes today. Uh, but as it opens, it says, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he goes on to write the scripture that we read initially, the one we're going to study today. He gives us the list of the gifts, which is where we're going to spend most of our time today. But then in verse 12, he says, referring to the gifts, their purpose is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. Okay, so we just read a whole bunch of scripture from all over the letter leading up to what we're going to study today. And so my question to you is, what's Paul's point? What's sort of the word or theme that you hear over and over? The body of Christ, the body of Christ right? Building it up. It's, it's, Paul cares very much about the unity of the body of Christ. For Paul, this is perhaps one of the most important things he wants to instill in his church, is that the church is one body, one people, there is one God, and this letter, every verse we read, and more, as if you go back and read all four chapters, it's all driving home the point that we ought to be unified in Christ, that we are not supposed to fight with each other, to divide each other, to find reasons to fight, but to be one unified church. And that is true of one local church, but also true of the larger church. It would not be incorrect to say that for Paul, one of the greatest witnesses of the church, one of the greatest evangelical tools of the church, is its unity and love for one another. And as we study, there's actually a new, new text out, uh, new, new research has been done, and there's a new book called The Patient Ferment. And it's actually interesting. I've, I've been reading it while we've been talking about evangelism and all the things that we've been talking about over the last month and a half. And the whole purpose or the point of the text is that the early church actually had no evangelistic strategy whatsoever. They didn't talk about it. So all this time we spend talking about how we go out and be the world and recruit people to the Christian faith. They didn't care right? It's not that they didn't care. They certainly cared about expanding the kingdom, but they just didn't talk about it. It wasn't a thing for them. And it was actually the love that they showed for one another, the care with which they attended to each other's needs and to the needs of those outside of the church. In the first few hundred years, there were several plagues. And while the rest of the Roman world was literally putting their family members out in the street because they were sick and because they didn't want to get sick, they just threw them out of the house. It was Christians that would walk through the streets and care for these people that had been ejected from their homes and left literally to die. Um, and it, it was their witness and love and unity in purpose and care for one another that was their evangelistic strategy. But it, they never actually like, talked about that. They just knew that they needed to be the people that God called them to be. And it just so happened that, hey, that actually works. 
People are attracted to what God has called us to do and the kind of people that he wants us to be, and the church exploded as a result. But we, of course, sit in a time where we've lost a lot of that, and we're going to talk about some of that today, and we need to rekindle the idea of evangelism and being God's people in the public sphere, because as, as we know, the, the church in America is dwindling and, and for all intents and purposes and by all measures. So in, in verse 4, uh, Paul says this, he says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. One. What, what does that bring to mind for those of you who have been with us for a few weeks? I'm asking you to recall back probably three or four weeks now. There's an Old Testament. I heard it. Yeah, the Shema, right? Is there, who, who, Leah's right. Who else remembers the Shema or what the Shema is? Yeah, Gwen. That is it. That is it. And it's called the Shema because Shema means here, and it starts, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, that, as Gwen said for us. And, and so Paul is rehearsing the Shema and, and using it to point to the fact that there is, there is one God, there is one faith. There aren't multiple gods. There aren't multiple faiths, and we can just pick and choose which one we want. There is one. There's one faith. There's one Christianity. There is one Jesus, and we are to be united around that one thing. Oneness, unity, is crucial. And then in the Scripture today, he says, but each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. And if you're looking in your own Bible, you you can see that that's a quote. And that is a quote from Psalm. It is Psalm 68, and it comes from verse 18. And the Psalm reads, you ascended on the high mountain, leading captives in your train and receiving gifts from people. Who hears the difference? Because Paul has changed this. He's lifting the psalm, referencing the psalm, but he's changed this substantially. In the psalm, it reads that you, being God, ascend the high mountain, you lead the captives, and you receive gifts from the people. And as Paul quotes it, he says, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive and gave gifts to his people. So Paul has actually flipped this, right? So God God still is ascending the hill, and when he says... When he ascended the hill, he made captivity itself a captive. Whereas in the psalm, it's God who brings the captives with him. And so this is obviously a reference to the hill of Calvary, God's sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice, right? And through that sacrifice, whereas in the Exodus, in the Old Testament story, it is God leading his people out of captivity, he still just does that for sure. We, we are delivered from the captivity of sin, but through his Christ's sacrifice, and this is a little bit of Paul tipping his hand as to what happens on the cross, Christ makes captivity itself a captive. He defeats captivity so that there is no longer this thing that holds us captive through his death, resurrection, and ascension, his, his victory. And then in the first instance, the psalm, it is God who receives gifts from the people as worship. It, here, Paul has twisted it and said, or changed it, and said that it is Christ who gives gifts to his people. 
And so he's used the psalm, but he's rewarded it for his own purpose. And then we get into the gifts. All right, so what are Christ's gifts to us? Today, what we're talking about is, it's an acronym we've created called APEPT. All right, it stands for, sometimes it's the four. Today, we're talking about five. The, the fourth in your, in your text, if you read it, it says pastor and teacher. And sometimes those get lumped together, and sometimes they get separated out. For our purposes today, we're going to separate them out and say this is, this is five. So it's the five-fold ministry. So have you ever heard anyone talk about the five- or four-fold ministry? This is where that comes from. And it, it goes by the acronym of APEPT. And they are, as we've read, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, or shepherd. It can be translated either way. And sometimes you'll see this APEST, but a pest doesn't sound good, right? So we're going to stick with APEPT. Um, and the, the final one is teacher. And so today we're going to spend time talking about what these things are, why Paul is so insistent upon making his church understand that these are the gifts that Christ has given to the church for the purpose of unity that he cares so much about. We're going to talk a little bit about what happens when these things function well and together, and then a little bit about when they go wrong or when they don't exist at all. Because at different times in our, our church life, the history of the church. The different ones of these have monopolized the church, and at times they've disappeared altogether, and we've had problems, and we can look to our history and actually see how things went wrong because we forgot this, okay? So we are going to start today with apostolic ministry, and I want to make a distinction right off the bat. There are the apostles, the big A apostles, right? Those are the 12, right? The 11, you know, the 12 minus Judas becomes 11. They replace him, and then Who's the other one? Paul, right? And what defines an apostle technically, a technical apostle, if we're talking about the apostles, is having had an experience with Jesus, being taught by Jesus, and then being given the mission. Apostle literally means sent one, being sent by Jesus to establish his church. And so we talk about the apostles. We're talking about the 12 and Paul. Paul having had his experience with Christ on Damascus Road, a little physical face-to-face encounter with Jesus, a conversation with Jesus that then sends him on. Now, there are plenty of people in the church who are little a apostles, which means they embody the ministry of those apostles, but they themselves are not apostles in the sense that those were, right? Because very few of us have actually seen Jesus face-to-face. I've not. I don't know one who claims to have, right? Um, I suppose it's possible, but I've never met one, and I would be skeptical if someone said they did. These five things are often referred to as offices in the church. Um, They are not necessarily exhaustive. Paul will add other offices um, later in some other places. But we're going to approach these today as ministries, and and perhaps we can find ourselves in one of these ministries, or as we go through these, one of my hopes is you're sitting there and you think, oh, that's me, right? I, I, I feel passionately about that thing. And so while you may not be an apostle while you may not be, uh, you know, planting churches, you may feel like that's something you care about and want to be part of it in some way, okay? That's my hope for today. So we're going to be talking about these things as ministries of the church, sort of the facets of the different faces of the church. So the apostolic ministry, its primary roles are to expand the church. This obviously takes its cue from the apostles. It's one, another one of its roles is to guard the DNA of the church, So as we see, especially Paul writing to his churches, a lot of what he does is correcting and rebuking, right? He's guarding the truth of the gospel, 
the, the DNA, we're going to call it the DNA. By that, we mean, we mean the gospel and the way in which the church faithfully lives that out. Um, and the other thing that it does is it creates sort of the narrative. It gives the church its narrative that creates the meaning that we find in our lives, right? And so that's, that's an apostolic function. The actual things that it does, it plants churches, as I mentioned. So if you know a church planter or there are organizations that actually plant churches, um, that's an apostolic ministry that, that takes its cue from the apostles who are the ones that went out uh, and spread the word and planted the churches. The other thing that it does sort of internally is strategic expansion. So there is a role to be played within the church where we get together the leaders of the church and we talk about, okay, how are we actually going to grow this church? So it may be that we have to go out and plant churches. So that's apostolic, but it's also apostolic to be talking about how we're going to actually strategically go about growing a church. An apostolic ministry will network. It will network with other churches to sort of bridge the gaps and, and work for that unity. Hopefully, create a, in our case, a Zanesville or Muskingum County church that can have a witness, despite the fact that we are different congregations and different worship times and places, we are still one church. And if an apostolic ministry is uh, successful in our context, we should be able to network and work with all of these churches towards a common goal. It also will develop leaders, will develop other uh, church planners, and then, as I mentioned, a, a, another big role that apostolic ministry plays and has played over the course of our history is to rebuke, weed out heresy, false doctrine, false teaching. And so it's certainly crucial that this functions. When it functions well, of course, uh, you, you're going to get growth, right? Because that's one of the core tasks of the apostolic ministry or someone who, who feels themselves called to apostleship. Um, there'll be sort of a focus, a clarity of purpose, and hopefully a, sort of a large meaning or a story that we all f find ourselves in that helps us understand life and, and Jesus and God. In churches where this becomes the primary and sole focus, they become very autocratic, very top-down. You can end up with a lot of hurt and wounded people because if you have someone who's a, an apostle and doesn't care about loving the church— uh, all they care about is growing the church and the mission outside the church and the church itself, the people of God get neglected. And to the extent with you don't, that you don't get with the program, sometimes you're just booted or kicked out or you're left hurting. So it can, be, it can be a bad thing. And the extent to which it doesn't exist at all or we forget that this is a role in the church, we end up sort of a rudderless, purposeless, go-nowhere church. Um, we, we sort of lose our meeting. The next one is the prophetic ministry. Its roles are to literally hear the Word of God. And there are people that do that from time to time. Uh, I'm not one that sits down and prays and hears God speak to me. I think I can point to one time in my life where I think that might have happened, and even then I would just wonder if I just ate some bad beans or something, right? Uh, maybe you've had that experience. You're like, is that you, God? I don't know. But that's my experience with God. Uh, more often it is a matter of searching God's Word being convinced and convicted that this is the thing that God has to say to his people in this time and place, um, and, and bringing that to the community. It does function to call the church back to its center. So whereas the apostolic ministry guards that center and sort of ensures that it stays true to the gospel, the prophetic ministry is sort of the voice of that and says, hey, y'all, we've we messed up, we've gone off track. We're, we're spending too much time over here, or we've made an idol out of this thing, and it calls the church back to its center, which is, of course, Jesus. 
and in that way it builds on the apostolic ministry. What it actually does is it's, it's the truth teller to the church. It says, hey guys, you've screwed up. Prophets can sometimes be hated. <laughs> um, in fact, there are a couple of verses about prophets being hated in their own towns. Uh, they're not always the nicest people um, to the extent that I, that I have any sort of prophetic calling. I hope that I can deliver that sort of thing in a loving way, but they're the people that step on toes because they'll stand up here and say, hey, you guys are you're off track. You're doing the wrong thing, and that's not something we want to hear, especially when we're talking about our faith and, and something that's so central to our identity, to be told that you're wrong about it, or you've missed the mark, or you've made an idol out of a thing, or a certain part of your life, that's, that, that hurts. And prophets can hurt sometimes. They definitely critique idolatry. They are often the ones that will call us back to God's justice. The Old Testament is rife with calls of prophets. Um, in fact, we have lots of examples of prophets, and of course, that's where this, this ministry takes its cue, is from the Old Testament prophets, where we have beautiful examples of this. But time and time again, one of the ways in which God is voicing his displeasure with his church is through a prophet calling them to his justice, to treat people nicely, lovingly, in the way that God wants them to treat them. There's a lot of questioning of the status quo. In the prophet's mind, this is the way we've always done it, is a terrible excuse. And they will, they will tear that down real quick because this is the way it's always done it, is not, a, is not a good reason to keep doing something. And they will make you understand that uh, we need to return to Jesus. And if it's, we're doing something that isn't driving us back to Jesus or expressing God's kingdom in, in, a, in a right way, that we need to stop that sort of thing. And so, whereas the, the apostolic ministry is to guard and expand the DNA, the prophet often expounds and incarnates that DNA in the world. And last week we talked about the missional incarnational impulse of the church. The prophet is a lot, of, a lot of times to say, okay, guys, come on, this is the way in which we need to live out God's calling in this time and place. All right, so they put their finger on the pulse of the world and say, here, church, over here. If, if it functions well, we, we remain focused on God, right? We remain on our, on our track. We are able to live God's calling in the world well because we have guidance. We're hopefully hearing from God as we do that through a prophet. When it becomes the main thing and gets out of balance, there can be a lot of division and divisiveness in the church because a prophet says, I know what God says. And if all you hear all day is, I know what God says and you're not doing it right, well, that's, that's not healthy. There's a time and a place for that. But if that is the thing that we're known for, or the thing that we do, I don't know about you, I'm going to get sick of that real quick. And then, of course, if it doesn't exist at all, the church can become stagnant. It can create idols, uh, and, and lots of things can go wrong. Uh, evangelical, or e <laughs> evangelical, evangelistic ministry. This is derived, if you remember, we talked about the Greek word euangelion, which is the Greek word for gospel. But evangelism is, that's, that's, a, that's a word we know, right? What's evangelism? The, the going out, right? Yeah, right? So evangelists are the carriers and communicators of the gospel, right? So they're the, they're the ones who actually go out into the world and carry the message of Jesus to the world, right? And so whereas the prophet is often the truth teller to the people of God, the evangelist is the truth teller to the world. And those can be different truths, right? The prophet is the one that's corrective and a little bit in your face. And the truth-telling of the gospel to the world can certainly be that, but it's also obviously an offer of love and grace, mercy, salvation. It can't always be just 
finger in your eye, right? God is mad at you. So it's often an, an invitation into the family of God. God is a loving, good God who has, this, who has done this wonderful thing for us, and, and the evangelist goes out and offers that wonderful thing to the world. Its primary task is to clearly communicate Jesus' lordship and the resulting offer of salvation. And we've talked for weeks on end about the core of the gospel being Jesus' lordship, and much flows out of that, including the offer of salvation. When it's functioning well, we certainly get organic growth, right? If we can all live into evangelism in some way or the other, we're out in the world inviting people into this place, inviting people into God's story, into the family, to become part of the unity that Paul is talking so adamantly about. If we do that well, we get growth. If we become all about evangelism, we can often lose a sense of vision. Uh, we become salvation culture. Our, our core task becomes recruiting and getting people in here, and we lose sight of the DNA. We lose the voice of the prophet keeping us on task. And you can go recruit people in lots of different ways. And I'm not going like, to call anybody to task, but there are lots of churches out there who bring people in in unhealthy ways. And, and we can look around and see this going wrong in lots of ways. And we've talked about the fact that when we get so growth-focused, we get in trouble. We get into that attractional, consumerist mindset, and then we lose the sense of worship, awe, and wonder, and fear of God that ought to be at the center. But if we are strictly evangelistic, if we strictly care about growth, that's, that's where that goes eventually. If the evangelistic ministry doesn't exist, what happens? Seems kind of obvious, I think. If you forget that you're supposed to be evangelistic, what happens as a church? Yeah, Janet goes, <laughs> you die, right? If you're not actually out in the world expanding the kingdom, bringing people into the family of God, well, eventually, we're all going to get old and go away, right? We need to be constantly bringing people into the family of God um, in order to continue the kingdom work that God has for us to do. The fourth one, the pastoral ministry, its role is as the caretaker of God's people. Um, I mentioned as we went through the acronym, the other way this gets translated is shepherd. Um, and that's for good reason, because the pastor, technically the pastoral role, the pastoral ministry is the one that loves for, cares for you, the people, and me. It definitely has a, a leadership role. It is here to nurture, protect, and to disciple. What it actually does is it cultivates that loving community, and it makes those disciples. This is one we're, we're certainly familiar with, hopefully. Um, when it functions well, you end up with a, a nurturing, loving community. You have a sense of connectedness, and you build disciples. And, and that's the, those are all the things that we ought to be doing as a church. When it becomes the only thing that exists, or the primary thing with no balance, you end up with closed, non-missional churches, churches that are focused on themselves, right? Because if the thing you're doing primarily is pastoral care, we're caring about each other, which is good, but that's that's all we're doing. And we're not being evangelistic. We're not being called to go into the world and, and be the light that we are, we should be. I struggle to even imagine a church where pastoral ministry is absent. That would be one sick church if you didn't have people in the church 
either the, you know, the, the pastor or a team, a pastoral team caring for one another, discipling one another. I don't even know what a church looks like. So pastoral care is certainly critical to a church. And the last one in our acronym and the, the fifth of the fivefold ministry is the teaching ministry, which is its purpose is to, or its role is to clarify the revelation of God in Christ so that the church gains wisdom and understanding. This is the teaching. This is the digging into Scripture. This is the expository work, the exegetical work, the explaining of the Greek and the context and, and how the letters fit together or how the parable fits in the larger ministry of Jesus so that we have the full picture. Uh, it is the challenging. It is the, hey, this Scripture says this, but this one says that. How do we understand those things to go together? This is, along with pastoral work, the other thing that we are most familiar with. The teaching ministry is a lot of what happens during this time that a pastor is called to teach. And there are actually pastors who are very good at it, and there are pastors who aren't so good at it. And in my experience, it's, it's actually tough to find some individual who's very good at both of those things. If you're a really good teacher, you tend to be very analytical and critical. And those people tend not to be the warmest, most loving people. That's just sort of a psychological reality. Now, that's not to say God can't do that. Um, I probably lean more towards the teaching side, uh, a little more analytical and critical, but that doesn't mean that I can't sit down and have a conversation and counsel and do that sort of thing. And then I've seen the other side, pastors who are brilliant at caring, loving, have an incredible intuition to know that there's something not going right, either in an individual's life or the life of the church, Uh, but their teachings just yeah, you know, sort of milk. And so it takes, I guess the point to that is it, it takes a community to do all five of these. When the teaching is functioning well, of course, we as a, as a body of Christ come into a deeper understanding of God and our faith, which is, is a primary purpose of the teaching role. The things that we do along with particularly the prophetic ministry become guided by truth. So the teacher is the one that's responsible for exp- explaining and expounding the scriptural basis for things. The prophet is the one who says, all right, guys, let's go, right? So those two things work together. And when they're working well, it can be a beautiful thing. When teaching becomes the primary and only focus, you can become very dogmatic, hyper-intellectual. You can verge on Gnosticism, which is a a big word I know, but in, in the early church, Gnosticism was a real threat to the church. And that Gnosticism basically was the teaching that Jesus came as a teacher of knowledge and that we are saved through the information that he imparts to us. And it sort of denied the death and resurrection and the thing that is Christian, right? And so we can get into sort of this sort of pseudo-Gnosticism if all we're doing is intellectually analyzing the text and we don't have these other ministries to help balance that out. Uh, And certainly if it doesn't exist at all, you just end up sort of ignorant, right? You just, you just don't know what the Scriptures say. You don't understand how it works together. You end up just grabbing any text you want to justify the behavior that you decide you're inclined to partake of for that day, uh, and we can just kind of go anywhere. So if we're not grounded in good teaching, then we've got real problems. And as I mentioned, the church as we know it, we're, we're probably most familiar with the pastoral ministry and the teaching ministry. And there's a reason for that. In the year 313 in the Roman Empire, something very important and critical happened in the church life. Does anyone know what that is? I know this guy does, but anybody else? 
The emperor's name was Constantine, and he made a pretty big decision for the church. Okay, you want to help us? Yeah, so uh, Constantine issues what's known as the Edict of Milan in 313, and it was the thing that says, okay, Christianity is the official religion of Rome. Up until that point, Christians were persecuted on and off. They were definitely outcasts. We've talked about the fact that they were thought to be weird and odd because they lived life in a different way. They didn't partake in the religious festivals or the life of, of Rome, but they had become such a force, and we think largely under the influence of Constantine's mother, he, he recognizes the political expediency of making Christianity the, the official religion of Rome. And there's lots of debate as to whether he himself became a Christian. There's, he did lots of weird things that would tell you, no, he's not, but ultimately that's for God to decide, not us, right? But what happens then is you get what grows into the Roman Catholic Church, backed by the Roman Empire. So the function of the church becomes largely and exclusively pastoral and teaching. Because if everyone in Rome is now Christian, what do you need evangelists for? Right? You now exist in a culture in which everyone's born is automatically a part of the Christian church. You are by default Christian if you're part of the Roman Empire. You don't need evangelists. If the emperor, the most powerful person in the world, in connection now with a pope who will grow into uh, an infallible character, now runs the church. What's hard to see an apostle coming along and correcting their heresy without being fed to the lions real quick or dispatched in some way or other. And you better be real careful if you're going to step up and be a prophet and talk about the idolatry of the church. Those people, have, they did come, most notably, certainly, uh, in the Reformation with Martin Luther and his 95 Theses and the other church leaders that sort of came around him and after him. So it did happen eventually. But if you live in a world where everyone's Christian and Christianity now has all of the power behind, of the Roman Empire behind it, and subsequently every powerful empire and nation that came after it, well, you don't need those first three. So the A, P, and E, the ape, they just get dropped. And we only recently are recovering those three. We have realized in the last hundred years that, hey, we're actually in trouble, right? We don't live any longer in a Christian culture, particularly in the American context, right? We were founded and claimed to be a Christian nation. Everyone here was pretty much Christian. Certainly you could believe anything you wanted to be. It was a freedom religion was a thing. So there were other mixes in there, but we certainly claimed to be founded on a Judeo-Christian ethic. And so for a long time, it was just assumed, and rightly so, that anybody who was sort of born, if you were born into a Christian family, you were going to be Christian. And so that way of functioning as a church had continued. And so we had pastors and we had teachers. We now know and are in, in, that we no longer live in that sort of society. We're just, not everybody's a Christian anymore. You realize that, right? right? As you go through your life and you hear people talk, like there are people who, there are some people who just have never heard it or they've heard it in some weird, strange way and they have no understanding of what Christianity is. And there are a lot of people who have heard it and just completely rejected it, walked away from it. And so we would live in what we would call a post-Christian era where people kind of know what it is and have said, I don't care about it. And so our challenges are unique, but the church, as we've said time and time again, seems to be dwindling in terms of numbers. And the question is, oh, well, what do we do about it? Well, we need the other three, but we need evangelists. We need prophets to come up, stand up here and say, this is where we're doing it wrong, y'all. 
And we certainly need apostles to guard the DNA, to stand up and say, this is the faith, this is the core. Last week, we threw that diagram up. Remember, I had the center, the center set diagram. At the core was Jesus. The apostle's the one that says, this is what Jesus is. This is who he is. These are the core beliefs. This is what God said. This is what the apostles said. And this is the thing we have to hold on to. You can't just believe anything you want about Jesus. There are core doctrines and, and beliefs, dogmas about Jesus. The apostle's the one that has to, to guard that. You've got to have the prophets that call us into the world to, to be the witness and to be sort of self-corrective because there are lots of ways in which we've, we've gone off track because we have focused on pastoral ministry and teaching ministry at the detriment of the others. And so we need to start to rekindle all five. All five have to be functioning in order for the church to be unified, to be the loving, God-centered, Jesus-centered, effective church in the world that God has called us to be. I actually had a conversation this week about some of the ways that the teaching has been going, and, and I just wanted to, we're tipping a hat. This is a little bit of a behind-the-curtain sort of peek. Now that you see this, do you understand where the teaching has sort of lived for the last three weeks, three, four, five weeks? A lot of what we've been doing is apostolic work, okay? We've been doing a lot of core teaching, talking about what the gospel actually is, trying to center us in that place, and then creating the meaning around that center. I'm going to tell you where we're going next. It's real hard. The P. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to start to shift towards more of a prophetic look at ourselves and the way that we do church. And what I'm not going to do is just tell you you're wrong about everything. That's not, that's not what we're doing, so don't hear that. But I am going to ask you to engage in that process to be prophetic with me as we think about the things that we do as a church, the things that we have done as the church, and ask, have we made an idol out of this thing? Have we gotten off track? Are we not, no longer focused on Jesus? And how might we take corrective action? We're going to do that for several weeks, and then we are going to go full bore into teaching so that we can begin to understand, really understand the message of God. So that's kind of a look at where I plan to take this time. Um, and I, I want to ask you and encourage you to get involved however you can. Questions are good. Lots of questions are, are good, um, especially as we get into teaching things that you don't understand. I, I would love to have feedback from you as we get into the sort of the prophetic teaching, as we're looking at the church in general, but also, also Emmanuel. It's going to be important for me, especially coming in new in the last couple of months, to hear from you, to hear the ways in which you interact with and respond to the way in which we are church. I also want to hear the things that you think don't work well, right? I want to know from you as the, the people who have been here, what do you think just needs to go? And I will reiterate what we said, I think on our second week, those conversations must be loving. They must be respectful because there may be something that I think serves no purpose, but someone else in this congregation really feels that is a way in which they express their love and adoration and worship to God, and that needs to be allowed to live. There's a, there's a danger here of prophetic voice becoming too strong, and then people's feelings get hurt. It becomes unhealthy, and we definitely don't want to go there. But that needs to be an exercise that we all engage in together to, to make sure that that doesn't happen. What I hope, as we went through this today, I, I realize some of it's just kind of bullet points and perhaps a little dry, especially if we're talking about a ministry that just doesn't 
resonate with you at all, but I hope at some point in there you thought, hey, that kind of feels right to me. I feel like someone who really has a, a hold on either what the gospel is and what God has been saying, and I feel like I, I need to, to help sort of keep us at our core, or I really care about the strategy and how we're going to grow this church. Like, that's, that's an apostolic thing. I encourage you to get involved in those sorts of conversations. Perhaps when we're talking about a prophet, you think, hey, yeah, I see a bunch of ways in which we're just not functioning well, and I, I just know, I have a sense that God is calling us in a different direction. That's a prophetic thing. And if you resonate with that, let me know. We need to put together a team that can do that and do that well. Perhaps just the idea of going and talking to people scares you to death. <laughs> You're not in vain. <laughs> yeah, I see some head shaking. Yeah, it does. Um, and that's perfectly fine. But it may be that you recognize the importance of evangelism. And I should say that there's the fivefold ministry, but there's this whole other thing called spiritual gifts, which they're not necessarily the same thing. And you may have a gift. You may have a way of functioning, or you may be wired in a way that you can be involved in an evangelistic ministry, but not actually have to be the person doing the talking to the person. So if, if the idea of expanding the kingdom in that way and getting the message out resonates with you, that, that's something that I, I want to know. I want to hear, yeah, that's something that I'm passionate about. Pastoral care has got to be a focus for us. I had this conversation with the consistory as, you know, in, in the initial days, and I, I told them, when you put that list together, pastoral care is probably like the bottom for me. Not that I don't love you and I don't care and I won't be there for you, I, I will. You know, we've already unfortunately had to do a funeral and that sort of thing. I, 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 I get it. I can be there. But the day-to-day -day sort of loving and caring, it's just not my strong suit. And that doesn't mean I don't love you. But we need help loving each other well and making sure that all the needs of the church are taken care of. And so if you're a person who just really values the relationships that are here, um, if you value the family atmosphere and, and the faces around you and you want to get involved in making sure that everyone's cared for in all the ways that we need to care for each other. I need to know that. I want to know that. Like, I, I want to help you do the thing that God has put on your heart. And then there is certainly the teaching ministry. And unfortunately, a lot of times that gets looked up and, and put on someone like myself. And we think, oh, this is where teaching happens. Well, yeah, a lot of teaching does get done here. But we have lots of small groups that need to be doing teaching. Uh, hopefully soon, We'll see with the, the, the pandemic, but hopefully we have kids again and we're going to need to teach our young children. There are lots of avenues to be involved in teaching and teaching well, and we're going to need a whole team for that. All that to say, these are the gifts that Christ has given the church. All five of them are necessary, and we have to understand what they are, and we have to be able to assemble people in order to carry out those functions. Otherwise, we're going to end up heavy on one, two, or maybe three of them, and neglecting the others. And if we want to be the full expression of Christ for the world and for each other, we have to be able to find ways to make all of these thrive. So my challenge to you and my ask of you is think about these, pray about these. If you feel led or called or pushed in one of the directions, let me know. My intention is going forward and it will take some time to build teams around each of these five areas and equip and give permission to the people who feel called in those directions to go do that thing so that we can become that church. Can you do that for me? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, first and foremost, the God that you are. We thank you for the sacrifice that you have made through
your son, Jesus, on the cross for us, that we may be redeemed, bought back, led out of captivity, that we might become your people. And we just, we just thank you so much for that. And as we read Paul's words today, we recognize that you have given us great gifts. There are great roles to be played in the church, and, and there is a great responsibility that comes along with that, Lord. And so we ask in the coming days and weeks that you would help us hear from you individually and corporately, that we might understand how we might step into each of those roles so that we might be a full, healthy, whole church, so that we might be unified around you, your son, and the truth that we have been tasked to carry to this world. We just ask that you would be with us through this, this week. Keep us safe and bring us together again next week. In your son's name we pray. In the power of the Spirit, amen.